1938 saw one of the world's most famous media hoaxes terrify a nation of unexpecting listeners when the original War of the Worlds radio broadcast was sent out across the airwaves unannounced, leading many to believe it to be a genuine news item. Somewhat more obscure is the tale of its precursor when, 103 years earlier, in August of 1835, daily New York newspaper The Sun ran a week-long series of articles concerning the discovery of life on the moon. The paper's Lunarians were a bizarre species of temple-building man-bats, living in perfect harmony with the animals that surrounded them. It was a humbug to match the audacity from any of the exhibits in P.T. Barnum's American Museum, and as unbelievable as it may sound today, at the time, there were many who firmly believed it, fueling debates that raged across all levels of society. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories Season 5, Episode 15. I'm Ben, as always, and it's absolutely great to get onto this subject, which is a topic that I've had in the bank for a really long time. I've been working on it in bits and pieces for a really long time because I knew this was it was quite a, a subject that requires slightly different research methods for myself. Um, so and, and it, it kind of prolonged it a little while. But basically, this episode has been being worked on for, for quite some time. So I'm really glad to finally kind of get it done and get it out. Um, because it's a fantastic story. And, and, and just, yeah, excellent story. Before we get on to it, uh, I do want to just say, um, thank you very much to everyone who's bought the Dark Histories books that launched a couple of weeks back now. It, I, I, when I made them, I'll be honest, I, I, I kind of didn't really think anyone would buy them or wasn't really sure if anyone would buy them. I just, you know, it was one of them things where you just, it, it just kind of accidentally happened and suddenly I was, you know, releasing books. Um, so, it, you know, I, I wasn't really ever really too sure if anyone would buy them, but yeah people have bought them and and for that i just want to say thank you so much i hope you're enjoying them um i really enjoyed making them uh you know putting them all together and stuff and and getting the covers illustrated was was really awesome so uh, yeah i I hope you're enjoying them anyway yeah yeah before that's all i wanted to say sort of before we started was just just thank you very much for you know your your continued support basically of, of everything i do for dark histories so thanks very much um Anyway, let's let's crack on. So like I say, this is a an episode I've been really looking forward to, and it's called Biped Beavers and the Man Bats from the Moon. Founded in the 17th century, New York was home to rapid growth from the very outset. An important Dutch and British settlement with a population of several hundred, by the time it was an important American city, that had grown to over 18,000. Within a century, the population stood at more than a quarter of a million and it was the largest city in the Western Hemisphere. Geographically speaking, New York's location had always made it a more preferable option for a central port over other North American rivals such as Boston to the north. The deep, 300 mile long Hudson River was a massive boon for transport of goods by itself and once construction of the Erie Canal was completed in 1825, the inland water route was effectively doubled in length, connecting the Atlantic Ocean to the Great Lakes, further reducing shipping costs and increasing traffic immeasurably. 
The canal's completion went on to elevate New York to the most important market port on the Atlantic, acting as a hub for the vast majority of trade for the entire North American colony. As its economy boomed, so too did the population, and by the 1830s, the city had grown beyond recognition, sitting comfortably as the second most populous city on the continent, smaller in size only to Mexico City, which it would soon go on to surpass. Over the following decades, its population would steadily double every 20 years for the rest of the century, growing exponentially. The port itself was, by some margin, the busiest port in America, handling more goods and people than all other American ports combined. Manufacturing swelled with trade, the sugar refining, cotton, textiles and publishing industries all seeing significant boosts. Publishing held a unique role due to the way that New York connected the new world to the old via the trade routes in its ports and the immigration upon its shores. A city of contrasts, New York juxtaposed cobbled streets with dirt roads. Large stone buildings stood proudly next to wooden boarding houses crammed with families of newly arrived immigrants. The gutters steamed with the excrement of the horses that pulled people and produce around the city. The wooden wheels clattering past food carts that parked themselves outside the factories and docks, selling yams, gingerbread, oysters and corn. Its growth was only ever slowed temporarily as it hit speed bumps such as the cholera outbreak in 1832 that caused widespread concern, highlighting the issues of rapid growth and urbanisation in a city that lagged behind in sanitation. By the end of the epidemic, over 3,500 deaths had knocked the city, but not managed to derail it completely. Its economy and rapid growth soon recovered, though the population would continue to watch over their shoulders for several years after, wary of further outbreaks that threatened on several occasions. Nowhere was this concern more apparent than within the population of the Five Points slum, a densely populated, crime-infested area of New York that stretched from today's Foley Square to Chinatown, where the streets were full of filth, pigs and stray dogs. The pigs may have done a job clearing down rotten food from the roads, but they left their own waste in their wake and that was no more attractive. In terms of sheer destitution, it competed on the world stage with London's East End, even outpacing the famous English Docklands with its murder rate. In the 1830s, the city was also home to many social and political schisms. In 1834, the slum had been the scene of some of the heaviest violence erupting as part of the anti-abolitionist riots that had broken out in July, following growing tensions between the white underclasses the growing Irish Catholic presence in the city and the abolitionist movement that openly attacked slavery as both a crime and a sin against God. Amongst the tensions and squalor, however, were also the bright lights and entertainment of a modern, industrialised city. Grand stages were illuminated nightly by gaslights, animatronic dioramas recreated scenes of distant lands, natural beauty and natural disasters in all their illusory glory. Scudder's American Museum on Broadway and Ann Street was a precursor to P.T. Barnum's infamous museum, showcasing taxidermy animals, often with handcrafted mutations born from the imagination of the creator. There were cages containing exotic animals, living giant snakes, and waxworks of historical figures, whilst Peel's Museum on Broadway showcased exhibitions of exotic flora, fauna and fossils. 
1835, Barnum himself was already a fledgling New York entertainer, busy showcasing an elderly black slave to the crowds under the guise that she was 161 years old and the nursemaid to George Washington. For all of the trade in food, textiles, medicines and entertainment, the city's newspapers, a sidearm of the blossoming publishing industry, were happy to provide advertising space. For years, the daily four-page broadsheets served the educated merchant classes with commercial advertisements and a single page of news, usually focusing on politics, trade and international affairs taken from other newspapers across America and Europe. The densely packed papers were funded by sales at six cents a paper or $10 yearly subscription fees. They featured no images or headlines and were far from accessible or even interesting to the general public. Despite the explosive growth in population, they maintained a relatively exclusive readership of around 10%, with the most widely distributed paper in New York, The Courier and Inquirer, having a circulation of only around 4,500 papers per day in a city of more than 250,000 people. Stories concerning city taxation, almshouse expenditures, and a brief ranting editorial concerning the ideology of the Whigs or Dems were, it's safe to say, far from general interest. The media was a far cry from what we might recognise as a newspaper today, and anything but mass. By the 1830s, however, there were people with bold ideas and big dreams who started to see another way of doing business. Benjamin Day, a printer from Massachusetts, was one such individual whose radical ideas would go on to shape the newspaper industry for decades and centuries to come paving the way for a new form of journalistic presentation that would prove to be as sensational as much of the stories they would report on, and certainly as groundbreaking. Benjamin Day was born in West Springfield, Massachusetts, on April 10, 1810, to Henry Day, a hatter, and Mary Ellie. He started a career in printing when he entered into an apprenticeship at 14 years old in 1824 with the Springfield Republican, a rural weekly paper that had just been established in the same year, and by the age of 20, he was a first-class printer. Shortly after completing his apprenticeship, he moved to New York City, married his cousin, a schoolteacher named Evelyn Shepard, had a son named Henry, and took a job as a compositor, assembling the layouts of a printed page from numerous small metal stamps of individual letters that would be used to print an entire newspaper. Day had some pretty radical ideas for the newspapers he worked so closely with, and soon after he moved to New York, he fell in with a small group of five other printers to establish their own paper, aimed at the working and artisan classes of the city, a paper that would be made by working people for working people. They named it the Daily Sentinel and launched their first issue with some pride. Within two months, however, Day would be back working as a compositor on other people's newspapers. Despite the Sentinel's bold attempt to cater to a new, potentially large market, the group had failed to appreciate that the $8 per year subscription was far more than the average worker could afford. By 1833, Benjamin Day had saved enough to buy his own printing press. But with his second child on the way, and with the economy struggling due to the cholera outbreak the year prior, things were not going particularly well for him. It was time, he decided, to be truly different. Day had, for some time, been formulating the idea for a daily newspaper that would cost only a single penny. 
much like the Sentinel. It would cater to the large working class audience of the city rather than the gated merchant classes and would feature news that would interest such a market. The idea wasn't entirely without precedent. A paper had launched that year with similar ideals, named the Morning Post, but it had folded within weeks. Day was sure he could make it work, however. The Morning Post had intended to be sold for a cent, but at the last minute had decided to double its price to two cents. This, Day was sure, had been its downfall, and so he committed to a one-cent newspaper. Rather than large yearly subscriptions, he decided that he would charge just $3 per year, paid in advance, with daily issues for a penny. He ran advertisements for the sort of businesses that found the merchant papers far too costly, and as such, wound up running adverts for all manner of snake oils and less than stellar companies. Things like a, a remedy for freckles were standard fare, or a scotch itch ointment and Dr Moffat's life pills, a supposed cure for diseases which were slowly but surely conducting their scarcely conscious victims to an otherwise inevitable death. Perhaps the most obvious break from traditional newspaper printing, however, would be in the paper's size and content. Made much smaller to make it less intimidating to read, and using large headlines to break up the dense text, Day's paper would run stories on local police news, stories of murder and crime rather than mercantile and commerce. They would be stories relevant to the high volume of people he intended to sell the paper to, and, in fact, needed to sell the paper to in order to make a profit. On September the 3rd, he launched the first ever edition of The Sun with the tagline, It Shines for All. The first ever edition sold 300 copies, selling out that afternoon. Day then returned to the office just in time to begin work on the next day's edition, which were published with an advertisement that would prove to be another of Day's clever plans. To the unemployed... A number of steady men can find employment by vending the paper. A liberal discount is allowed to those who buy to sell again. Day was looking to utilise a technique often seen around the streets of London, where young boys, often homeless or from punishingly poor families, were sold newspapers in bulk in order to resell, trawling the streets, shouting out the headlines to reel in the buyers. Some of the most pioneering paper boys would eventually start up their own industry, subcontracting boys by the dozen and forming their own alliances, conglomerates and even territories. By the end of the first year of its publication, the Sun had proved itself a resounding success, selling papers daily in the thousands. Whilst the merchant papers might have looked down upon the Sun's use of journalists to write up court transcripts and report on crimes coming from the five points, they looked on with envy at the circulation numbers. By December of 1833, Day had upgraded his equipment to the latest steam presses and was churning out 1,000 copies of the paper per hour. He had hired on two new printers and a new editor in the radical George Wisner, an abolitionist who used the editorials to champion freedom of the press and the idea that all men were created equally. Wisner was not the only radical writer on board, as Day himself had his own radical vision of the future, and soon he would hire a crime writer who would go on to pen arguably the Sun's most famous ever story. As the Sun was busy rising to fame, 
Richard Adams Locke was working as a court correspondent for another New York newspaper, The Courier and Inquirer, a traditional merchant paper who had branched out into crime reporting in direct response to the Sun's resounding success in the realm. Born in Somerset, England, he had had a reasonably privileged upbringing, his grandfather being a rather wealthy landowner who had spent his days writing local history. After his death, Richard's father inherited the bulk of the estate and married his stepsister, Anne, and the couple had Richard as their firstborn son in 1800. He had been educated by his mother alongside a private tutor and was generally a bookish teenager, keen on writing for which he showed early talent. As he reached young adulthood, the lines of his life story begin to blur between fiction and reality. There are various reports and publications that print his own stories, that he joined the Royal Engineer Corps in Canada and that he schooled in Cambridge, though records of neither of these things actually exist. What certainly is true is that he moved to London and wrote for several politically radical papers and pamphlets, including The Republican, an anti-class paper that promoted religious nonconformism. He also wrote for several literary publications and in 1823 became the editor of the Bristol Cornucopia where he wrote poems, literary reviews, essays and editorials on subjects as diverse as history, chemistry, geology and astronomy. It was a busy but short-lived position as the paper folded after just two issues. He went on to write for several local rags, though on at least one occasion, local landowners took a dislike to his radical politics and pressured the newspaper in order to have him removed from the position. By 1830, he'd got married, had a daughter named Adelaide, and garnered a solid reputation as a radical free thinker and writer. Feeling constrained by his politics, he moved from rural Somerset to New York City, where he hoped he might have a little more freedom. One problem that Locke had not considered was that although he could fudge his background in America, a little embellishment to his school life here, a small elevation of his military career there, he still had to start from the bottom in terms of writing reputation. Or near enough at least. His haughty British accent and allusions to an Oxbridge education did give him somewhat of a leg up as many Americans still held a deep-seated inferiority complex to the old world. Upon his arrival in New York City, Locke learnt shorthand and began working in the courts with the local crime journalists. Unlike the other journalists, however, Locke wrote his accounts of the crimes and trials with flair. He chose to hone in on a singular case that he considered the most interesting, rather than just report every case of every day ad hoc. Quickly, he began carving a reputation for his writing. On the side, He took jobs when he could get them, writing for pamphlets on science, theology, literature, politics and history, until eventually the Courier and Inquirer, motivated by the success of The Sun, employed him full-time as their crime reporter. It was a steady, well-paid job, but Locke always found the writing a touch low-brow, and a far cry to the editorialising that he had done before, where he could express his thoughts and opinions in politics and religion for wide publication. In 1835, Benjamin Day, who enjoyed Locke's writing, took it upon himself to visit Locke in court in the hopes of headhunting him for his own paper. That summer, there had been a particularly large case in the courts after Robert Matthews, or Jesus Matthias, as he preferred to be known within the cult that he had founded, had been arrested and Day wanted Locke to report on it for the Sun. For Locke, he would be writing the story for the Courier and Inquirer anyway, 
So why not, he thought. He promptly took the job, but only on the understanding that he would use a pen name when the story was published. Moonlighting for the sun had been an offer he couldn't refuse, and a cracking windfall for Locke, who earned well out of the deal. However, it was also a position that the Courier and Inquirer could not fail to see the truth of. Once Locke's story was published on the front pages of the sun, Locke was promptly fired. Fortunately, the story had proved as popular with the Sun's readership as Day had expected, and so he was quick to snap up the now unemployed writer, offering him the position of the Sun's editor and welcoming him on board with open arms. That summer, Halley's Comet was scheduled to pass the Earth on its 76-year orbit. In any normal situation, the story of the celestial body streaking through the night sky would have captured the headlines of the papers as the most exciting astronomical story of the year, and during the run-up to its appearance, it certainly had caused a certain amount of excitement for astronomy in the general population. But 1835 was no normal year, and a story far more sensational was brewing in the mind of Richard Adams Locke, whose position with the sun the most widely read paper in the city, had imperfectly poised to unleash it upon a baying audience. Throughout the summer of 1835, Richard Adams Locke had been enjoying a steady time as editor of The Sun. It was a huge step up from his position writing for The Courier and Enquirer. It was a real position of power with the largest reach in the city. Throughout his early editorial ship, Locke wasted no time in launching attacks on the other newspapers of the city that he disagreed with politically and morally, a tradition for New York newspaper editors at the time, who quite often fought a bitter circulation war with their fists as much as they fought with words. James Gordon Bennett, founder and editor of the New York Herald, was an especially eccentric figure who was well known for ending up in brawls on the streets of New York owing to his scathing editorial pieces. Locke had made a pretty penny with his Matthias story and taken on the stable job at the Sun. However, it wasn't as well paid as it could be. Benjamin Day held the sole equity in the newspaper and Locke was only on a wage of $12 per week and only months after his pamphlet on Matthias had sold so well, he was once again staring down the situation of the working poor. Day had earlier promised him that if he could ever come up with another series like the Matthias trials, then there would be more money for him. But how often did a story like that come along? After all, you couldn't will a story into existence just because you needed some money. You couldn't just make stuff up. Or could you? Locke ruminated on the concept, a series written for the paper based in astronomy, a hot ticket that summer, and a long-time interest of Locke's, who spent much of his reading time consuming journals on the natural sciences. Forging the idea into his mind, he proposed the story to Benjamin Day, who offered him $300 for the series. Whether or not he knew or cared that the pitch series was entirely made up has never been established, but the fact that Locke was eventually paid almost double his asking price of $300 leads one to assume that he didn't have too much in the way of scruples with the story in the long run. He had a readership to expand and a profit to be made in a cutthroat business and a violent atmosphere after all. Richard Adams Locke got to work, and on Friday, August 21st, a small, inconspicuous story ran on the second page of The Sun. Despite being one of the leading articles, it was so small that it was easy for a casual reader to completely pass over it, paying it no mind. 
none of the newspaper boys hollering in the streets would have been using the rather nondescript headline to sell papers, that much was for sure. Celestial Discoveries The Edinburgh Courant says, We have just learnt from an eminent publisher in the city of Edinburgh that Sir John Herschel at the Cape of Good Hope has made some astronomical discoveries of the most wonderful description by means of an immense telescope of an entirely new principle. Though it may have seemed vague in the extreme, and it was, it was in fact a much cleverer piece than it was letting on. It was a seed for what was soon to come. It was nothing more but a hype piece that would work to give Richard Adams Locke's upcoming story a grounding in something real. By planting this seed on the 21st, the first entries to the Sun's big summer blockbuster would have people nodding along, sure that they'd heard something about this before, and just maybe, they might think it wasn't quite as crazy as it sounded. After all, hadn't some British newspaper already reported on this story? They were all sure they'd read something about this before. It was subtle manipulation, but on the 21st, it was still simply a vague story, and most people would have read it and moved right along to the wealth of other stories on the page that seemed so much more important, which was, of course, precisely Locke's intention. Four days later, the true beginning of his new series, The Sun's Moon Story, would begin for real, and that, it proved, would be much more difficult to forget. The first proper article in Locke's Moon series was published on the 25th of August, 1835. This time, it was a much larger and more difficult to ignore piece, starting in the second column and taking up the vast majority of the page. On the second page, Locke wrote an editorial explaining the series to the readers. We this morning commenced the publication of a series of extracts from the new supplement to the Edinburgh Journal of Science, which have been very politely furnished us by a medical gentleman immediately from Scotland in consequence of a paragraph which appeared on Friday last from the Edinburgh Quorum. The portion which we publish today is introductory to celestial discoveries of higher and more universal interest than any in any science yet known to the human race. Right up until the final sentence, it was fairly standard fare. British journals were much respected in America at the time, and writings from Europe were generally regarded in high esteem, thought to have much more integrity and intellect than American journalism. Often, a newspaper would use British or other European credentials to boost a story's importance or credibility. Then came the Sun's trademark sensationalism. This story was going to be groundbreaking. Readers of the piece, however, would have been less than excited. It was a drawn-out, densely written scientific piece that apparently came from one Dr Andrew Grant, the pupil of an assistant to Sir William Herschel, a real-life astronomer with a solid reputation amongst his peers. Essentially, Locke had written the first instalment with an eye to give the entire series a grounding in the science of the day and make what he had in store for the following days more believable as a consequence. It concerned itself with the science and engineering involved in the discovery and the building of Herschel's telescope, a brand new device that contained a new breakthrough in science, a hydro-oxygen microscope lens, which he quoted as costing an estimated £70,000, funding of which Herschel had secured from the Royal Society. The new lens technology would allow distant objects to maintain illumination enough so that even the tiniest objects on the surface of the moon could be seen with absolute clarity. 
It was essential for the article to begin with the science of the telescope involved, the paper boldly assured readers, for a knowledge of one is essential to the credibility of the other. Sir John Herschel had submitted his plans and calculations in adaptation to an object glass of 24 feet in diameter, just six times the size of his venerable father's. For casting this ponderous mass, he selected the large glass house of Messrs Hartley and Grant, the brother of our invaluable friend Dr Grant, at Dumbarton. The material chosen was an amalgamation of two parts of the best crown with one of flint glass, the use of which, in separate lenses, constituted the great achromatic discovery of Dolland. It had been found, however, by accurate experiments, that the amalgam would as completely triumph over every impediment, both from refrangibility and discoloration as the separate lenses. Five furnaces of the metal, carefully collected from productions of the manufactory in both the kind of glass, and known to be respectively of nearly perfect homogeneous quality, were united by one grand conductor to the mould, and on the 3rd of January, 1833, the first cast was effected. After cooling eight days, the mould was opened and the glass found to be greatly flawed within 18 inches of the centre. Notwithstanding this failure, a new glass was more carefully cast on the 27th of the same month, which, upon being opened during the first week of February, was found to be immaculately perfect, with the exception of two slight flaws so near to the line of its circumference that they would be covered by the copper ring in which it was designed to be enclosed. The weight of this ponderous lens was 14,826 pounds, or nearly seven tons after being polished, and its estimated magnifying power 42,000 times. It was therefore presumed to be capable of representing objects in our lunar satellite of little more than 18 inches in diameter, providing its focal image of them could be rendered distinct by the transfusion of article light. It was not, however, upon the mere illuminating power of the hydro-oxygen microscope as applied to the focal pictures of this lens that the younger Herschel depended for the realisation of his ambitious theories and hopes. He calculated largely upon the almost unlimited applicability of this instrument as a second magnifier, which would supersede the use and infinitely transcend the powers of the highest magnifiers in reflecting telescopes. So sanguinely indeed did he calculate upon the advantages of this splendid alliance, that he expressed confidence in his ultimate ability to study even the etymology of the moon, in case she contained insects upon her surface. Having witnessed the completion of this great lens and its safe transportation to the metropolis, his next care was the construction of a suitable microscope, and of the mechanical framework for the horizontal and vertical action of the whole. His plans in every branch of his undertaking have been intensely studied, even to their minutest details, were easily and rapidly executed. He awaited only the appointed period at which he was to convey his magnificent apparatus to its destination. To be continued. The piece was written with just enough scientific fact, mixed with a hearty amount of science fiction, that any layman would have found the whole thing perfectly plausible, at least as far as they could understand and it perfectly set up the public, who were primed for Locke's upcoming big reveals. In 1835, generally speaking, the popular scientific opinion was that the moon lacked the required atmosphere to support life. There were, however, astronomers who were still propping open the debate, suggesting that there may have existed caves or subterranean tunnels that could host entire civilizations. 
Franz von Paula Gretusen, a Bavarian physician and astronomer who taught astronomy at Munich University, wrote papers that argued for the existence of structures on the moon's surface, including streets and buildings. Far from a crackpot theorist, he was also the first to suggest that lunar craters were caused by impacts from meteorites. In 1826, Wilhelm Olbers published an essay in the Edinburgh New Philosophical Journal titled The Moon and Its Inhabitants. It was a relatively short essay, but a fascinating and telling insight to the accepted knowledge and theories of the time. The Moon and Its Inhabitants Olbers considers it as very probable that the moon is inhabited by rational creatures, and that its surface is more or less covered with a vegetation not very dissimilar to that of our own Earth. Gretusen maintains that he has discovered, by means of his telescope, great artificial works in the moon erected by the Lunarians, and, very lately, another observer maintains from actual observation that great edifices do exist on the moon. Nogarath, the geologist, does not deny the accuracy of the descriptions published by Gretusen, but maintains that all of these appearances are owing to vast dikes or trap veins rising above the general lunar surface. Gretusen, in conversation with the great astronomer Gauss, after describing the regular figures he had discovered in the moon, spoke of the possibility of a correspondence with the inhabitants of the moon. He brought, he says, to Gauss's recollection, the idea he had communicated many years ago to Zimmermann. Gauss answered that the plan of erecting a geometrical figure on the plains of Siberia corresponded with his opinion because, according to his view, a correspondence with the inhabitants of the moon could only be begun by means of such mathematical contemplations and ideas which we and they must have in common. The vast circular hollows in the moon have been by some considered as evidences of volcanic action, but they differ so much in form and structure from volcanic craters that many are now of opinion and with reason, that they are not vast circular valleys. Conversely, in 1834, just one year before Locke's moon story was being published, Herschel himself, the central figure Locke had used in his series, had published an article that debated the existence of life on the moon, claiming that it would be impossible due to the lack of air. However, he had concluded that, before anyone could be 100% certain, an improvement in telescope technology would have to be advanced precisely what the article in the Sun was now suggesting. The telescope written of in the first series was 40 feet long, with a lens 24 feet in diameter and a magnifying power far greater than anything that was currently a reality. But that hardly seemed to matter to many people. In 1835, confidence in science and technological advancements was sky high. Since the start of the century, the public had already seen the invention of the earliest form of batteries, steam trains, internal combustion engines, powered printing presses, electrical telegraphs, early photography, electromagnetism and even programmable computers. In terms of astronomy, William Herschel had discovered Uranus in 1781 to round out our own solar system and by the 19th century early forays were being made into the understanding that the infrared spectrum came from the sun asteroids were discovered and the chemical makeup of atmospheres and stellar bodies were being routinely discussed. It was, however, still a natural science that bordered on the magical to many. And the question of life on the moon was also deeper than purely scientific. Debates raged in religious groups as to whether or not life did or did not exist on other planets 
and what that meant for our role in the universe and our position to a holy creator. One of the strongest religious arguments for life in the universe was that God would have created life all around us. The concept of a universe full of dead planets was almost nonsensical from a 19th century creationist perspective. Locke's story played into many of these debates and it walked a fine line between credibility and sensation. With the foundations having been laid in the first instalment, it was now time for things to get really interesting. The second instalment of Locke's Moon series was published on Wednesday the 26th of August. Locke was concluding each day with the classic line, to be continued, and true to form, the story carried on from where the part one had ended. It was now time, the article explained, for Herschel to find a suitable position to build his telescope, and much of the second day's article describes the science of the time behind why the Cape of Good Hope would be the most advantageous for viewing the moon. After convincing the money men, the astronomers apparently sailed from London on the 4th of September 1834 with a large party of the best English mechanics. They arrived after an expeditious and agreeable passage and immediately proceeded to transport the lens and the frame of the large observatory to its destined site, which was a piece of tableland of great extent and elevation about 35 miles to the northeast of Cape Town and which is said to be the very spot on which Delacale, in 1750, constructed his invaluable solar tables, when he measured a degree of the meridian, and made a great advance in exactitude in computing the solar parallax from that of Mars and the Moon. Sir John accomplished the ascent to the plains by means of two teams of oxen of 18 each in about four days, and, aided by several companies of Dutch boars, proceeded at once the erection of his gigantic fabric. Building of the telescope was completed in the first week of December 1834 and the first month or so was spent, for one reason or another, very possibly in order to further inject some suspense into the story, discovering new stars in the southern zodiac signs of Libra, Scorpio, Sagittarius, Capricorn, Aquarius and Pisces. After that, Herschel went to work on the moon. It was about half past nine o'clock on the night of the 10th the moon having then advanced within four days of her mean liberation, that the astronomer adjusted his instruments for the inspection of her eastern limb. The whole immense power of his telescope was applied, and to its focal image about one half of the power of his microscope. On removing the screen of the latter, the field of view was covered throughout its entire area with a beautifully distinct and even vivid representation of basaltic rock. Its colour was a greenish-brown, and the width of the columns, as defined by their interstices on the canvas, was invariably 28 inches. No fracture whatever appeared in the mass first presented, but in a few seconds, a shelving pile appeared of five or six columns width, which showed their figure to be a hexagonal, and their articulations similar to those of the Balsitic formation of Staffa. This precipitous shelf was profusely covered with a dark red flower, precisely similar, says Dr. Grant, to the Papaver rhoas, or the rose poppy of our sublunary cornfields, and this was the first organic production of nature in a foreign world ever revealed to the eyes of men. The balsitic rocks continued to pass over the inclined canvas plane through three successive diameters when a verdant declivity of great beauty appeared, which occupied two more. This was preceded by another mass of, of nearly the former height 
at the base of which they were at length delighted to perceive that novelty, a lunar forest. The trees, says Dr. Grant, for a period of ten minutes, were one of unvaried kind, and unlike any I have seen, except the largest kind of yews in the English churchyards, which they in some respects resemble. These were followed by a level green plain, which, as measured by the painted circle on our canvas, of 49 feet, must have been more than half a mile in breadth, and then appeared as fine a forest of firs, unequivocal firs as I have ever seen, cherished in the bosom of the native mountains. Wearied with the long continuance of these, we greatly reduced the magnifying power of the microscope without eclipsing either of the reflectors, and immediately perceived that we had been insensibly descending, as it were, a mountainous district of a highly diversified and romantic character, and that we were on the verge of a lake or inland sea, but of what relative locality or extent we were yet too greatly magnified to determine. Zooming the telescope out in order to get a fuller picture, they found beaches of brilliant white sand with water that was nearly as blue as that of a deep ocean. As much as they continued to search, however, no trace of animal life was found. For two more hours they searched, uncovering monstrous amethysts of a diluted claret colour that rose over 90 feet tall and glowed in the light of the sun. Finally, whilst drifting the scope of the lens through a lush green valley, the scientists made the discovery that they had been seeking. In the shade of the woods on the southeastern side, we beheld continuous herds of brown quadrupeds, having all the external characteristics of the bison, but more diminutive than any species of the boss genus in our natural history. Its tail is like that of our boss grunnians, but in its semicircular horns, the hump on its shoulders, and the depth of its dewlap, and the length of its shaggy hair, it closely remembered the species to which I first compared it. It had, however, one widely distinctive feature, which we afterwards found common to nearly every lunar quadruped we have discovered. Namely, a remarkable fleshy appendage over the eyes, crossing the whole breadth of the forehead and united to the ears. We could most distinctly perceive this hairy veil, which was shaped like the upper front outline of a cap, known to the ladies as Mary Queen of Scots cap, lifted and lowered by means of the ears. It immediately occurred to the acute mind of Dr. Herschel that this was a providential contrivance to protect the eyes of the animal from the extremes of light and darkness to which all the inhabitants of our side of the moon are periodically subjected. The next animal perceived would be classed on Earth as a monster. It was of a bluish lead colour, about the size of a goat, with a head and beard like him, and a single horn, slightly inclined forward from the perpendicular. The female was destitute of horn and beard, but had a much longer tail. It was gregarious, and chiefly abounded on the acclivitous glades of the woods. In elegance of symmetry, it rivalled the antelope, and like him, it seemed an agile, sprightly creature, running with great speed, and springing from the green turf with all the unaccountable antics of a young lamb or kitten. This beautiful creature afforded us the most exquisite amusement. The mimicry of its movements upon our white-painted canvas was as faithful and luminous as that of animals within a few yards of the camera obscura, when seeing pictures upon its tympan. Frequently, when attempting to put our fingers upon its beard, it would suddenly bound away into oblivion, as if conscious of our earthly impertinence. But then others would appear, whom we could not prevent from nibbling the herbage, say or do what we would to them. And that was just the start. 
That night they found numerous species of birds along the river, some resembling a pelican but with elongated bills and legs, along with an amphibious creature of spherical form that rolled out of sight before they were able to get a proper look at it. It had been a long and exciting night for the scientists, but the day's article had to come to an end at some point, and preferably without shooting its full load. The scientists withdrew to rest, and the story concluded with the by now unprecedented hype-rendering line, to be continued. After the excitement of the discoveries of the second article, day three started by lowering the fever attach, continuing to describe various valleys, hills, mountains, and even volcanoes of much varied landscape. The highlight of the day, outside of more bison-like creatures, as well as some miniature zebras and a few shellfish, were beavers who appeared to have some very human qualities. Of animals, he classified nine species of mammalia and five of ovipara. Among the former is a small kind of reindeer, the elk, the moose, the horned bear and the biped beaver. The last resembles the beaver of the earth in every other respect than in its destitution of a tail and in its invariable habit of walking upon only two feet. It carries its young in its arms like a human being and moves with an easy gliding motion. Its huts are constructed better and higher than those of many tribes of human savages and from the appearance of smoke in nearly all of them there is no doubt of its being acquainted with the use of fire. Still, its head and body differ only in the points stated from that of the beaver and it was never seen except of on the borders of lakes and rivers, in which it had been seen to immerse for a period of several seconds. If the third day had brought the story down a notch, it was only to further heighten the impact of the discoveries outlined in the fourth instalment, published on Friday the 28th of August. The day's observations begun by sweeping over a great black lake, surrounded by vast sheer cliffs struck through by gold veins, which eventually gave way to fields of animals. We were again delighted with the discovery of animals. The first observed was a quadruped with an amazingly long neck, head like a sheep, bearing two long spiral horns, white as polished ivory, and standing in a perpendicular parallel to each other. Its body was like that of a deer, but its forelegs were most disproportionately long, and its tail, which was very busy and of a snowy whiteness, curled high over its rump and hung two or three feet by its side. Its colours were bright bay and white in brindled patches, clearly defined but of no regular form. It was found only in pairs, in spaces between the woods, and we had no opportunity of witnessing its speed or habits, but a few minutes only elapsed before three specimens of another animal appeared, so well known to us all that we fairly laughed at the recognition of so familiar an acquaintance in so distant a land. They were neither more nor less than three good large sheep, which should not have disgraced the farms of Leicestershire or the shambles of Lenhall Market. With the utmost scrutiny, we could find no mark of distinction between these and those of our native soil. They had not even the appendage over the eyes, which I have described as common to lunar quadrupeds. Presently, they appeared in great numbers, and on reducing the lenses, we found them in flocks over a great part of the valley. I need not say how desirous we were of finding shepherds to these flocks, and even a man with a blue apron and rolled up sleeves would have been a welcome sight to us, if not to the sheep. But they fed in peace, lords of their own pastures, without either protector or destroyer in human shape. No shepherds ever were found, 
but instead, something even more enticing. They averaged four feet in height, were covered, except on the face, with short and glossy copper-coloured hair, and had wings composed of a thin membrane, without hair lying snugly upon their backs, from the top of their shoulders to the calves of their legs. The face, which was of a yellowish flesh colour, was a slight improvement upon that of the large orangutan, being more open and intelligent in its expression, and having a much greater expansion of forehead. The mouth, however, was very prominent, though somewhat relieved by a thick beard upon the lower jaw, and by lips far more human than those of any species of simia genus. In general symmetry of body and limbs, they were infinitely superior to the orangutan, so much so that, but for their long wings, Lieutenant Drummond said they would look as well on a parade ground as some of the old cockney militia. The hair on the head was a darker colour than that of the body, closely curled, but apparently not woolly, and arranged in two curious semicircles over the temples of the forehead. Their feet could only be seen as they were alternately lifted in walking, but, from what we could see from them, in so transient a view, they appeared thin and very protuberant at the heel. Whilst passing across the canvas, and whenever we afterwards saw them, these creatures were evidently engaged in conversation. Their gesticulation, or more particularly, the varied action of their hands and arms, appeared impassioned and emphatic. We hence inferred that they were rational beings, and although not perhaps of so high an order as others which we discovered the next month on the shores of the Bay of Rainbows, they were capable of producing works of art and contrivance. The next view we attained of them was still more favourable. It was on the borders of a little lake, or expanded stream, which we then for the first time perceived running down the valley to a large lake, and having on its eastern margin a small wood. Some of these creatures had crossed this water, and were lying like spread eagles on the skirts of the wood. We could then perceive that they possessed wings of great expansion, and were similar in structure to that of the bat. Being a semi-transparent membrane, expanded in curvilineal divisions by means of straight radii, united at the back by the dorsal integuments. But what astonished us very much was the circumstance of this membrane being continued from the shoulders to the legs, united all the way down, though gradually decreasing in width. The wings seemed completely under the command of volition, for those of the creatures whom we saw bathing in the water spread them instantly by their full width waved them as ducks do to shake off the water, and then, just as instantly, closed them again in a compact form. Our further observation of the habits of these creatures, who were of both sexes, led to results very remarkable, that I prefer they should first be laid before the public in Dr. Herschel's own work, where I have reason to know that they are fully and faithfully stated, however incredulously they may be received. These human-like bat mutants were quickly dubbed Vespertillo Homo, or in lay terms, simply the man-bat. Grant wrote of them as innocent and happy creatures, though some of their behaviours were said to, with much good old-fashioned British stuffiness, ill comport with our terrestrial notions of decorum. The fourth article ended by explaining that much of the information of the man-bats had been suppressed by Herschel, who had given a full account in his scientific paper that would be published at a later date. It also came with a reassurance that in March of 1835, several Wesleyan ministers had visited the laboratory under strict orders of secrecy in order to become eyewitnesses for which they would attest in Herschel's upcoming work.
On the same day, New York's most popular evening newspaper, the Evening Post, began reprinting the Moon articles from day one, deciding not to take sides, at least not before it reprinted the series for itself. It simply suggested that the story was very important if true. After blowing the lid of the Batman in the fourth article, day five of the Moon Saga once more stepped up the discovery of intelligent life, but tantalisingly, not in the form of even smarter Batman or any other equally bizarre alien being, but in the form of an ancient but seemingly deserted temple. It was an equitriangular temple, built of polished sapphire or of some resplendent blue stone, which, like it, displayed a myriad points of golden light twinkling and scintillating in the sunbeams. Our canvas, though 50 feet in diameter, was too limited to receive more than a sixth part of it at one view, and the first part that appeared was near the centre of one of its sides, being three square columns, six feet in diameter at its base, and gently tapering to a height of 70 feet. The intercolumniations were each 12 feet, we instantly reduced our magnitude so as to embrace the whole structure in one view, and then indeed it was most beautiful. The roof was composed of some yellow metal and divided into three compartments, which were not triangular planes inclining to the centre, but subdivided, curved and separated, so as to present a mass of violently agitated flames rising from a common source of conflagration and terminating in wildly waving points. This design was too manifest and too skilfully executed to be mistaken for a single monument. Through a few openings in these metallic flames, we perceived a large sphere of a darker kind of metal, nearly of a clouded copper colour, which they enclosed and seemingly raged around, as if hieroglyphically consuming it. This was the roof, but, upon each of the three corners, there was a small sphere of apparently the same metal as the large centre one, and these rested upon a kind of cornice quite new in any order of architecture with which we are acquainted, but nevertheless exceedingly graceful and impressive. It was a half-open scroll, swelling off boldly from the roof and hanging far over the walls in several convolutions. It was of the same metal as the flames, and on each side of the building it was open at both ends. The columns, six on each side, were simply plain shafts, without capitals or pedestals or any description of ornament nor was any perceived in other parts of the edifice. It was open on each side, and seemed to contain neither seats, altars, nor offerings, but it was a light and airy structure, nearly a hundred feet high from its white glistening floor to its glowing roof, and it stood upon a round green eminence on the eastern side of the valley. We afterwards, however, discovered two others, which were in every respect facsimiles of this one, but in neither did we perceive any visitants besides flocks of wild doves which alighted upon its lustrous pinnacles. Had the devotees of these temples gone the way of all living, or were the latter merely historical monuments? What did the ingenious builders mean by the globe surrounded by flames? Did they by this record any past calamity of their world, or predict any future one of ours? I by no means despair of ultimately solving not only these, but a thousand other questions which present themselves respecting the objects of this planet. For not the millionth part of her surface has yet been explored, and we have been more desirous of collecting the greatest possible number of new facts than of indulging in speculative theories, however seductive for the imagination. 
That Saturday also saw the printing of a lithograph, purporting to be copies of the engravings created by Herschel's assistants. In reality, they were drawn by Mr. Baker from Norris & Baker, a lithography office on Wall Street hired by Benjamin Day. The images featured the man-bats flying over a river surrounded by waterbirds. Selling for 25 cents, lunar animals and other objects discovered by Sir John Herschel in his observatory at the Cape of Good Hope and copied from sketches in the Edinburgh Journal of Science, as they were called, was the first of two lithographs that would eventually be published alongside the story, selling in volumes great enough for an estimated profit of over $50,000. The commercial advertiser picked up on the Evening Post lead and began its own reprinting of the story. This time, however, it was less neutral in its commentary, pointing out that the construction of such a massive telescope would have almost certainly have been reported about in British newspapers before. Still, it didn't seem to stop anyone caring, and they read on vociferously. With the mysterious temple leaving people hanging on day five of the moon narrative, day six aimed to conclude the whole piece with the scientists' final observations that would tie it all together. Having previously introduced the world to lunar man-bats, Grant lifted the veil on the uber-man-bat that lived not far from the temples spied on the previous day. We saw several detached assemblies of beings whom we instantly recognised to be of the same species as our winged friends of the Ruby Colosseum near the Lake Langrenis. Having adjusted the instrument for a minute examination, we found that nearly all of the individuals in these groups were of larger stature than the former specimens less dark in colour, and in every respect an improved variety of the race. They were chiefly engaged in eating a large yellow fruit like a gourd, sections of which they divided with their fingers and ate with rather uncouth voracity, throwing away a rind. A smaller red fruit, shaped like a cucumber, which we had often seen pendant from trees having a broad dark leaf, was also lying in heaps in the centre of several of the festive groups, but the only use they appeared to make of it was sucking its juice after rolling it between the palms of their hands and nibbling off an end. They seemed eminently happy and even polite, for we saw, in many instances, individuals sitting nearest these piles of fruit, selecting the largest and brightest specimens, and throw them archwise across the circle to some opposite friend or associate who extracted the nutrient from those scattered around him, and which were frequently not a few. While thus engaged in their rural banquets, or in social converse, they were always seated with their knees flat upon the turf, and their feet brought evenly together in the form of a triangle, and for some mysterious reason or other, this figure seemed to be an especial favourite among them, for we found that every group or social circle arranged itself in this shape before it dispersed, which was generally done at the signal of an individual who stepped into the centre and brought his hands over his head in an acute angle. At this signal, each member of the company extended his arms forward so as to form an acute angle, horizontal with the extremity of the fingers. But this was not the only proof we had that they were creatures of order and subordination. We had no opportunity of seeing them actually engaged in any work of industry or art, and so far as we could judge, they spent their happy hours in collecting various fruits in the woods, in eating, flying, bathing, and loitering about on the summits of precipices. These advanced man-bats were surrounded by other animals, and much to Grant's amazement, all animals on the lunar surface appeared to live in peace. 
Although evidently the highest order of animals in this rich valley, they were not its only occupants. Most of the other animals, which we had discovered elsewhere, in very distant regions, were collected here, and also at least eight or nine new species of quadrupeds. The most attractive of these was a tall white stag with lofty, spreading antlers, black as ebony. We several times saw this elegant creature trot up to the seated parties of the semi-human beings I have described, and browse the herbage close beside them, without the least manifestation of fear on his part or notice on theirs. The universal state of amity among all classes of lunar creatures, and the apparent absence of every carnivorous or ferocious creatures, gave us the most refined pleasure, and doubly endeared us to this lovely nocturnal companion of our larger but less favoured world. The article concluded with the drama of the telescope's lens not being properly placed away during the day, leading to a wall of the observatory being burnt down by the magnified sun's rays and damage done to many of the reflectors, though fortunately it was able to be repaired within a week. Sadly, by this time, the moon had become unobservable, and so a large part of the final article instead explained some rather arbitrary astronomy, painfully dull after the bombastic reveals of the week before. The last description was of a race of man-bats once again superior to even the uber-man-bats, who seemed to be more inclined to making works of art, but, rather teasingly, their full description was only hinted at with the promise of a publication in full in Herschel's forthcoming authenticated natural history of this planet, which, of course, would never exist. And thus concluded Richard Adam Locke's Moon series. Readers of the story today might find it to be quirky in the extreme, with the vast, vast majority, more or less all but the most excitable, probably writing the whole thing off as a barrel of nonsense and an obvious, overstepped hoax. But in 1835, it was quite the opposite. Locke's story was a sensation, blowing up the streets of New York as people everywhere debated the topic of Lunarians. Everyone had read the series, and everyone had an opinion on its contents. It was, without question, the hot topic of that summer. The sun's immense reach throughout the city and the rabid reprinting of the story had turned Locke's little piece of fiction into one of the first ever mass media sensations. People from all classes and backgrounds experienced and shared together in a mass social event that held little to no precedent. In fact, Locke's story had not been entirely unique. Edgar Allan Poe had published his own lunar hoax in one of science fiction's earliest entries with The Unparalleled Adventure of One Hans Fowl just months prior in The Southern Literary Messenger. Poe's story, he assured readers, was a true event and told of a man who built a balloon that carried him on a 19-day-long journey to the moon. However, the impact of Poe's story could not have been any more different, with it going on to exist in relative obscurity compared to Locke's moon series which rode on the back of the sun's vast multicultural reach. And by the time it had finished its week-long run, just about every citizen in New York had heard of the story if they'd not read it for themselves. The Locke's Moon series was widely read and discussed is undisputed. However, much more difficult to gauge is the contemporary public's reaction and their belief in the story. In the summer of 1835, Transatlantic communication still relied on good old-fashioned letter-writing that were then shipped across the water, taking weeks to arrive. 
the moon story operated in a window of opportunity that meant no one in New York could easily check the truth of the suggested sources. Both the Edinburgh Journal of Science and the newspaper that carried the story initially, the Edinburgh Courant, were not readily available. Unless, of course, the Sun were happy to hand over their own copy, which, given that it didn't exist, they were not keen to do so. And eventually, that became clear after a pair of Yale professors, Denison Olmsted and Elias Loomis, who travelled to New York via a steamboat after the story had begun to spread nationwide, to inquire at the office of the Sun, seeking out the original moon story from the Edinburgh Journal. Benjamin Day quickly directed them to Locke, who in turn directed them to a printer who he said had the journal in their possession. Immediately after they left his office and headed toward the printer's, Locke hightailed it to the same, heading them off and ensuring that the printer could tell them an equally tall tale. By the time they arrived, the fully briefed pressman was able to direct them to a proofreader's office just further down the road. This continued again and again until the professors were forced to return to their steamboat empty-handed, though they would later suggest that they never believed the story from the outset. The story of the Yale professors has, in time, become as legendary as the moon story itself and the truth of it is somewhat debated, though it is certainly true that the story was talked about within the institution where it was the absorbing topic of the day. It was said that whilst the topic was flying around the university, nobody expressed or entertained a doubt as to the truth of the story. It's an interesting observation, given that the school was the owner of America's largest telescope and claimed to be the centre of American astronomy. The hype of the story further clouded the truth. The more sensational the story was, the more interesting, and the fact that people were believing in the existence of biped beavers and man-bats was a sensation in itself that played into the story, and so the question of belief became just as sensationalised as the story itself. There were even people who said they owned original copies of the Edinburgh Journal that the story had come from, who assured others that the sun's reprinting had been perfectly faithful. Others claimed to have seen the telescope themselves at the East India docks of London as it had been loaded aboard the ship that would carry it to the Cape, all in the name of blowing the story up, hyping the sensation more and more. People wanted to become part of the story, truth be damned, until the lines of who were telling what lies became increasingly blurred. On the 29th of August, The Sun published the full text of the moon story in an 11-page pamphlet costing 12.5 cents. Within days, it had sold 20,000 copies in New York alone and would go on to be published nationally, selling upwards of 60,000 copies in the first month. And as distance appeared between the publication and the editorials discussing it, a narrative becomes more clear that, despite there being a great deal of doubt, many people believed what they had read. The New York Daily Advertiser said of the series, No article, we believe, has appeared for years that will command so general a perusal and publication. Sir John has added a stock of knowledge to the present age that will immortalise his name and place it high on the pages of science. Whilst the commercial advertiser wrote quite the opposite. We can hardly understand how any man of common sense should read it without at once perceiving the deception. Outside of the press, literary commentary was equally divided and equally forthcoming. 
Edgar Allan Poe himself, who found the story to be alarmingly similar to his story of Hans Fahl, wrote that Not one person in ten discredited it. And, strangest point of all, the doubters were chiefly those who doubted without being able to say why. The ignorant, those uninformed in astronomy, people who would not believe because the thing was so novel, so entirely out of the usual way. A grave professor of mathematics in a Virginian college told me seriously that he had no doubt of the truth of the whole affair. Across the pond, things were a little different. With the benefit of the knowledge that the Edinburgh Journal story was a fraud, the moon hoax story was called out for what it was immediately. The British newspapers reported on the story, but with a much different approach to their American counterparts. There has never been a more ingenious or successful fraud perpetrated on the credulity of mankind than that which has been recently practised upon some of the American journalists, as we find it recorded in the last New York papers. Of course, it was much easier for the British papers to come to that conclusion, given that so many of the facts relied on the isolation of the American continent from Europe. Still, it seems fair to say that although debate was rigorous and discussion healthy, there was a considerable population that found the idea of man-bats in fantastic temples perfectly acceptable, and that, in general, it was a healthy split between believers and sceptics. As the story spread out across America, the same pattern was repeated nationwide, with editorials standing firm, fighting on both sides of the debate. Interestingly, the newspapers that that thought it all a fabrication quite often found it in themselves to praise the paper for its ingenuity in a manner reminiscent of P.T. Barnum's humbugs that was sweeping the country by storm and would go on to become a staple of American entertainment, whereby having one's leg pulled was entertainment in itself worthy of commendation. The only paper to really call out Benjamin Day and his paper for printing what he daubed as unprincipled, low-bred and impudent was James Gordon Bennett's Herald, and he more than likely only did that to keep with tradition and stoke the war with the sun. For the story had been a resounding victory for all of the penny papers, who were showing New York that they were, without doubt, the more entertaining newspapers of the day, highlighting the stuffy old-fashioned nature of the old six-cent broadsheets. Gordon Bennett did not stop there, however, and he wrote a scathing editorial published on August the 31st that called out the series as a hoax and identified Richard Adams Locke as the author. Gordon Bennett's proof was simple. At the time of publication, The Sun had two employees, Benjamin Day and Richard Adams Locke, and Locke just fit the bill more as far as Gordon Bennett could see. His proof of the hoax was far more substantial, however, when he pointed out that there existed no such journal as the Edinburgh Journal of Science, and in fact, he was right. What should have been a cold killer of the hype behind the hoax, however, was lost in a boy-crying-wolf situation, and many just read the editorial as another of Gordon Bennett's tirades against the sun. Nevertheless, it kicked off a weeks-long battle of words between the two papers, as Locke refused to admit his own involvement in the authorship, and Gordon Bennett, frothing at the mouth to discredit just about everything concerning the paper and its editor. It wasn't until 1836, long after Locke had left the sun, when he published an article in another penny paper, The New Era, on poetry, which he signed as the author of The Moon Hoax, publicly acknowledging his involvement. On May the 6th, 1840, 
weekly newspaper, The New World, published a letter written by Locke that gave a full account of his authorship of the series, claiming that he'd intended it to be a satire upon the encroachment of religion upon science, whereby astronomers were seeking to find life in the universe in order to satisfy their creationist beliefs, rather than adhere to strict science fact, which he called an imaginative school of philosophy. One final question is to ask what William Herschel thought of the entire matter. He was, after all, a legitimate astronomer, presumably with a reputation to uphold. During the publication of the Moon Hoax series, Herschel really had been in South Africa, charting the stars in the Southern Hemisphere, and he had been completely unaware of the story unravelling in New York using his name. He remained blissfully unaware until, so the story goes, he was handed a copy of The Sun by an American menagerie owner. Upon the revelation that the paper had printed the series, he was said to have laughed and stated simply that He feared the actual results of his telescopic observations at the Cape would be very humble, in popular estimation at least, in comparison with those ascribed to him in the American account. However, an unpublished letter was uncovered in 2001 that showed a slightly different side to Herschel's response. Written in 1836 and addressed to the editor of the Athenium magazine, a British literary journal published in London, Herschel clearly showed his weariness for the story. Sir, as I perceive by an advertisement in one of the London newspapers now before me, that the nonsense alluded to in the heading of this letter after running the rounds of the American and French journals has at last found a London editor. It appears to me high time to disclaim all knowledge of or participation in the incoherent ravings under the name of discoveries which have been attributed to me. I feel confident that you will oblige me therefore by inserting this my disclaimer in your widely circulated and well-conducted paper not because I have the smallest fear that any person possessing the first elements of optical science, to say nothing of common sense, could for a moment be misled into believing such extravagancies, but because I consider the precedent a bad one, that the absurdity of a story should ensure its freedom from contradiction when universally repeated in so many quarters and in such a variety of forms. Dr. Johnson indeed used to say that there was nothing, however absurd or impossible, which if seriously told a man every morning at breakfast for 365 days, he would not end in believing. And it was a maxim of Napoleon that the most effective figure in rhetoric is repetition. Now I should be sorry, for my own sake as well as for that of truth, that the world or even the most credulous part of it should be brought to believe in my personal acquaintance with the man in the moon. Well knowing that I should soon be pestered to death for private anecdotes of himself and his family, and having little intention, and less inclination to humour the hoax, should come to be looked on as a very morose and uncommunicative sort of person, when it was found that I could or would say no more about him than that that is already known to all the world, viz. that he drinks claret, eats powdered beef and turnip and carrot, and that a cup of old Malaya sack will fire the pack at his back. I am, sir, your obedient, John F. William Herschel. Reading the Moon Hoax story today, it might seem hard to understand how anyone could have ever believed that there was any truth to it at all. It can be easy to forget that at the time, the pervading atmosphere was one of confidence in science and technological advancement. It was a faith for many that bordered on the religious. 
In recent years, humans had come to harness the power of steam in world-bending ways as trains and ships cut journey times in an instant. Steam-powered printing presses worked overnight to pump out thousands of copies of publications that came from across the world. Photography was in its infancy, as was telegraphy, electromagnetism and electric motors. Early precursors to the bicycle were seen in the streets, balloons were seen in the skies, and food appeared on store shelves in cans. Great leaps were happening in all levels of life, from giant life-changing machines to the smallest details of daily life. Within this context is the idea that telescopes showing us life existing on the moon really any more crazy than the life that could be viewed with a new clarity in an ordinary glass of drinking water thanks to the advancements in the lenses of microscopes that had been made in the early 1830s. At the same time, the moon hoax was perpetrated at just such a moment in time when transatlantic communication was still slow, leading to a certain degree of isolation that could be taken advantage of, at least for a time. The 19th century had been called a culture of curiosity, where truth and fiction blurred in several unique ways, ways in which the likes of P.T. Barnum and The Sun gleefully manipulated for entertainment value. With his story, Richard Locke had provided just enough scientific jargon loosely based upon real-life science in order to sound feasible to the layperson, whilst the more learned in society underestimated the penny paper journalists, thinking the story too far above the quality of writing that they expected from a medium that they so thoroughly looked down upon to be fake. Locke gave up journalism for good in 1842, taking instead a job in US customs, where he fudged yet more of his past, declaring himself an American-born citizen. Upon his death in 1871, The Sun printed an obituary on the front page where it called his moon hoax series the most successful scientific joke ever published. The story was told with a minuteness of detail and dexterous use of technical phrases that not only imposed upon the ordinary reader, but deceived and puzzled men of science to an astonishing degree. Perhaps one of the best endorsements for Locke's hoax comes from Mr Humbug himself, P.T. Barnum, who said of the affair, The sensation created by this immense imposture, not only throughout the United States, but in every part of the civilised world, and the consummate ability with which it was written, will render it interesting, so long as the language shall endure. So that was Richard Locke's story of the man bats from the moon and the bipedal weavers and all sorts of other bonkers animals. So we'll talk a little bit about that after these short advert breaks. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Avey. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. 
Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. Thanks for listening to Dark Histories. This podcast is entirely independent and funded by myself and listener support. So in order to do that, I need to run a few ads. Our long-time advertising partner is Audible, and the reason I've stuck with them for so long is that they offer a service that I actually use and enjoy myself. And I do think it actually offers value to people like myself who enjoy podcasts. If you're unaware of what Audible is, it's an audiobook subscription service which charges a monthly fee in return for one credit, which you're free to spend on any audiobook you like. The catalogue is huge, multilingual, and covers everything from fiction to series of lectures. They have an iOS, Android and web app, and if you use more than one, they all sync up together so that you can listen on any of your devices without having to skip about. If you ever feel like you want to take a break from the subscription, you can do so and you get to keep all your previously bought books. And when you get into a drought, you can just fire it up again and start gaining credits seamlessly. Some of my favourite books on there to date are the complete Sherlock Holmes, which is read by Stephen Fry. And they've also got the original Exorcist book and just a huge history back catalogue. And I've really enjoyed all of those, basically. So if this sounds like something you might be interested in, head over to audible.com forward slash dark histories, and that's dark histories all one word. And you can start a free trial that offers a monthly subscription with one free credit so that you can instantly pick an audiobook of your choice. If at the end of the trial, you feel like it's not really for you, you can just cancel it and it's cost you nothing and you get to keep your free book. So once again, that's audible.com forward slash dark histories or you can find the link in the show notes. So earlier I mentioned listener support, and there are a ton of ways that you can get involved and support Dark Histories. The main way is to become a Patreon patron. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, I'm sure you're familiar by now, but for those not so much, Patreon is a way to make a monthly pledge in return for some small perks. On the Dark Histories Patreon, I set my pledges as low as I can, really, with options for $1, $3, and $5 per month. And for that, you gain things like early access episodes without these horrible ads, PDF notes, and resources that I make and find during my research for each episode. There's also access to the live stream archives and more. So if you enjoy the show and you think it's worth it to you, hop over to darkhistories.com And you can find all the ways that you can support, including our Patreon, or just check out the links in the show notes. If none of that appeals, then sharing it around with all your friends and family is equally as helpful and just as much appreciated. So if you're here, then thanks so much for not skipping the ads with that 30 second skip button and giving my hard sell a listen. I'll let you get back to the episode. Cheers. Welcome back. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoy that story. It's completely bonkers. Like I said at the start, it's one that I've been working on for a little while. So it's really great to get it wrapped up finally and finished. Um, 
like I said, I when I came across this story, I was instantly reminded of Lord um, Lord of the Rings. Well, I was going to say that. Um, I was instantly reminded of War of the Worlds, and I that's a story as well that you know I, I love in itself. But I found this one to be just even better because War of the Worlds, you know, still kind of to some extent holds up today. Where you know, cause it, well, I suppose mm, you, you know, it's we still have stories of. UFOs coming to Earth and stuff, you know. Um, but this one really shows its age. The sheer absurdity of giant man bats and the fact, like living with just regular sheep on the moon, <laughs> and it's just yeah, it's a brilliant story. Um, and it works in so many ways. I think there's so much interest in it. Like I said, it's not really a mystery, so there's not so much to talk about there. But to talk about the story, there is some really fascinating parts in it, I think, um, that show so well the time that it was written in, the, the, just the absurdity of the science fiction of it all. Um, that's really interesting, and that's obviously, for me, the main interest. Um, but sociologically as well, it tells like a lot of really interesting stories. Like I love the way it reflects so much more of the time's attitudes towards... Race is an interesting one when they, when, you know, when he, he he mentions like the different races and stuff. Uh, I, so something that slips in very casually and and is a throwaway line almost in the story, but very telling is you know the way he talks about the beavers being uh, sort of more advanced than any savages on Earth, and it's like oh, harsh. Like all of a sudden he's kind of he, he just sort of throws it out there, and the fact that it's so casual and so so casually dropped in it shows how you know that was really the attitude of the day right and and that was you know about kind of tribes people and things like that 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 they were just the savages and and that's you know you don't need to think any more than that kind of thing you know that was their attitude um i I really like the way that's sort of thrown in there and when he talks about uh, i thought it was interesting and maybe this is me reading too much in it but i did think it was interesting when he was talking about the the man bats and that the more advanced man bats were of a lighter skin colour. And I thought, well, again, is that just reflecting people's biases of the times? Like, And, you know, this is coming from abolition, like a, 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 an abolitionist who was quite radical thinking, and yet he's still kind of injecting this kind of level of prejudice into his stories that he knows is going to fly. You know, he knows it's going to make it slightly more believable or whatever. I I, I thought it was interesting how it, it like I say, it, it kind of reflects the time so well, and it's and and it just makes it more interesting than War of the Worlds because say it's got that extra hundred years on War of the Worlds, right? So so it, it's just another step removed from you know where we are today. It's, it just makes it sort of more interesting, I guess, or I find so, it, or I find it to be more interesting. But um, yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. Aside from that, you know, it's just ridiculous. I loved everything about it. I loved all the the imagination of all the animals is fantastic. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's really about it. We can sort of talk about, about, you know, do we think people believed it or not? I think it seemed to be like fairly split, but it did seem to be a large amount of people did believe it. Um, it, it's, It's quite difficult to gauge, but it... It really does seem like there were a significant portion of people that believed the story, which, you know, that that's interesting. But I definitely think it's it's completely fair to see why they believed it, because 
the, the, the just the sheer like onslaught of advancements that had happened at the time like you know it was a period where there was like magical things happening almost you know sort of decade by decade so i, I really think it's like you know fairly understandable to, to see why someone might might have believed it because they're, they're just so used to hearing like something that yesterday was impossible and is now possible today and i think richard Locke was really really smart to um you know capitalize on that that feeling of the time of of that that just that faith and and um sort of excitement about technology and stuff but yeah otherwise that's about that there's there's, there's there is actually quite a lot to talk about i guess there's so many little bits of this story that i just really loved but um but really, it's just me rambling. So I'll, I'll leave it there. Um, thanks very much for listening. If you'd like to contact me with your thoughts, absolutely please do so. I'll be, I'd be more than happy to, to, to read your thoughts. Um, you can email me, contact at darkhistories.com. Uh, you can find me on all social media, Twitter, uh, Instagram, Facebook. Instagram is the one I'm, I'm mainly... Um, sort of active on um and you can find all of those links in the show notes if you would like to support the show um you can find uh links to all the ways you can do so on the website uh, which is darkhistories.com and otherwise that's about that thanks very much for listening i'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode which i think because we're heading into october it's all going to get a little bit supernatural and spooky season so yeah I look forward to that they're some of my favourite episodes to be honest so yeah we'll be uh, doing some some interesting spookiness soon thanks very much for listening I'll see you real soon until then take care sleep tight <laughs>